Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. We are continuing part two through Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver. Sorry for the long delay, but uh, various outside events have conspired to make... Well, I wouldn't say it's made recording more difficult. We kind of have all the home time in the world now, but there's distractions out there in the world. How have you guys weathered with it so far? Well, I have weathered enough to know that we're in part three instead of part two. Well, the details that I forget. <laughs> That's true. We're on, the th we're on the third part of the plot now, aren't we? Yes, we are. Okay. It has been a while. <laughs> um, BJ, how are you faring? Uh, so far, so good. Okay. Well, I believe if where we ended up in our run through the plot uh, was that we've discovered our tiny little cat witch's cabin in the woods, mm -hmm. and our various characters have started to cluster around it. Yes, and we, uh, we stopped before the special spoon. Yes. <laughs> That, that uh, you've been talking with this spoon for a while now. Farther uh, spurs on some some further uh, special things. Anyway, oh, but by way of reminder, there is a witch's cabin in the woods that serves as kind of like a branching point between worlds, of where various people can inhabit this cabin and interact with its objects in a way that affects the objects in the other person's version of the cabin, even though they're on different planes of existence. Yeah. So basically, and, one is in the Staric world and one is in the normal people world. Right. Or Russian, whichever. And, and at this point, uh, the main people that are living in this cabin are a combination of Wanda and her brother Sergi, and at the same time, Irina and her babushka, uh, who take a while to get what exactly is happening. I don't even think they necessarily get it really right away up until the point where our third character, Miriam, who's just kind of on a bit of a joyride with Chauffeur because she's so damn stir-crazy, also come across the cabin. Mm-hmm. And how can we sum up basically what the main events to get out of this is other than Miriam and Arena get together and start putting together a plot? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we really ended up at the first time that Miriam saw Arena coming out of the woods, right? When she was mm -hmm. on this, this kind of joyride for the coronavirus um, lockdown. <laughs> uh, yeah, she sees what, you know, is in some ways a more fitting Staryuk princess than she is. A woman bedackled in Staryuk Silver, who she has very briefly met before when she dropped mm -hmm. off, I believe it was the crown? Was it the crown or the necklace that she oh, met? I think previously? they had gotten all the way to the crown at that point. Yeah, so I think like she dropped off the ring and might have seen her at the necklace and then what? met her at the crown. I don't think she dropped I think a servant came to pick up the ring and then they drop off the neck. I think it progresses like that. Okay. Yeah. But she has met her briefly before and now they kind of very rapidly realize that they are in a similar, though inverse, situation. Similar situation, but in very different location. Of where they are bound to, what I'll just say are demons of different elements, who aim to mm -hmm. possibly inflict harm on them, or at least keep them permanently bound away from the world they wish to live in. And they believe that they can help each other, given that their two particular tormentors are kind of mere opposites from each other opposites of each other who they hope will interact like matter and antimatter if they're put in the same room the lords of ice and fire would you say pretty much yes we have chernabog who's being depicted as a deem a, a demon of all fiery hell and we have i was about to say his name but we don't know it mystery <clears throat> king who is the embodiment of winter's fury and yeah so they put together a bit of a plot on the fly about what they are going to do to make these two meet and hopefully snuff each other out of existence. That is centered around various marriages happening in Visnia. 
Yes, this is the the Jane Austen that we get in this whole situation. <laughs> it's the yeah. marriage plot. Yeah, the level of plotting they have to get them in the room is remarkably more involved than what they're going to do once they're there. I don't. They've yeah, got a lot of different moving pieces. This was yeah. quite the uh, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match that <laughs> was in mind. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they they've arranged that essentially they're going to regroup in Disney, of where Miriam's cousin is well known to be having a wedding. And she's going to present this to the Starrett King of, where, well, you have to let me do that because I already promised. She's learned enough at this point to know that how binding they view promises as. Yes. Meanwhile, Irina is in some way going to convince uh, both her husband, the uh, Marentius, the czar of this, um, blanking on what the name of this kingdom is, but the czar of this Russian equivalent kingdom, they're either going to convince him or Chernobog himself that you need to go to Viznia because the Starrett King is going to be there and this could... Well, from Marantia's standpoint, maybe help you out with your demon situation, and from the demon standpoint, may give you the final quenching of whatever it is you've been searching for of all of your life. Because mm-hmm. he's been desiring this. For the reason that he was going after Arena, it seems to be the Staric magic serves a particularly soothing effect on the burning that is integral to its being. And Something she seemed to have some apparently. sort of pale shadow of it based on her her mother, but now particularly the the sort of magic accoutrement that she has uh, right. that Miriam has sold her father. Mm-hmm. And so they begin each in their own way putting this plan in motion. All at the same time of where um, the um, Miriam's family... I think this is all happening about the same moment, mm-hmm. have realized that Miriam is missing, that she was in Visnia. It's kind of like a sudden shock memory return. And they are horrified by it. It is painful to them that they forgot this. It's painful for them that they're separated and they are determined for as long as they have the memory and they don't really understand why they don't have it anymore. They are going to go to Visnia and they're going to see her as soon as possible. And also, and looped into this... Mm-hmm. Is the other woman? Yeah, Wanda and, and her brothers. Wanda and so Wanda and her. So where we sort of get that they're all at the same place at the same time is Wanda and her brothers end up and the well, just one brother right now. The other one's going to be riding with the Mandalovs. Right, that's true. Right. Yes, the youngest brother is with the Mandalovs. That's correct. Uh, Wanda oh, and her older brother Sorry. end up in yes. the witch's hut in the human world as opposed to the Stark. Yes. World. Interacting did we, with we, we, we talked about I, I'm sorry it's been so long since we did the last episode did we talk <laughs> about the murder of Wanda's father we did yeah. okay and why they then fled into the snow to eventually find I just wanted to make sure that this was not like a surprise to our listeners that right oh, I, I think oh, we, oh, did oh, he did. Yeah. we had gotten to this point okay uh quick recap mostly of, of that um, and to, to get us here. And so this is sort yes. of where the interaction comes along, where um, Arena's uh, hand, no, hand nurse, like her nurse or... or Handmaiden. Uh, yeah. Well, but she's like 50 years older. Um, her babushka. Sure. Yeah. Pick a term. <laughs> sure. Uh, um, basically her her minder or whatever um, is... Her, her surrogate mother. <laughs> yes, her surrogate mother is doing work on sort of the same things that Wanda is doing work on. And so Wanda does a little bit of work to try and, like, get the bed doing well and have, a, like, a nice blanket or whatever. And then when she returns to it, it has, like, intricate embroidery. And mm-hmm. so right. at the same time, Magreta, I think, 
uh, is doing like yeah. work on on what she finds there. And so this is sort of the interaction that right. you sort of eventually comes to a head in. Uh, they make some porridge and uh, heat it up in the stove, and then at some point comes back and there's a spoon in it, and sort of and that. There's, there's more gone than they thought there should have been. Exactly, right. and so mm-hmm. and we see in the other world that somebody's been eating out of it with this spoon, and that's where like we know that this is exactly where the overlap is occurring. Although right. we do get some interesting evidence that there is some sort of third realm that is involved in this with the witch who made it this cottage in the first place. Um, right. That we we never get, and and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but like we never get more about her except that she's there. And there are some um, some things that appear in both realms that don't necessarily have correlates in the other one. Yeah, and we have, we have I think the Stark King just kind of flippantly says, "Well, she made it, and now she's gone." But like mm-hmm. you said, there seems to be some implication that no, she's probably still hanging out and perhaps annoyed or at least tolerating the idea that there's now a lot of people squatting in her home. She's at least observing. Yeah, which may factor into Wanda's original interpretation, given that a lot of her quick conclusions prove accurate, is that she originally interprets what's happening as the house itself is alive, and she's doing these things in some way to pay the house back for providing them refuge. Mm -hmm. Which may not be literally accurate, but if the witch is actually present, that could explain some of this. Meanwhile, um, Meanwhile, the nursemaid... I don't think she really, we don't really, we see a bit of her, she becomes a bit of a point of view we have going forward from here, but her response to the house is, I wouldn't exactly say it's flippant, I think it's just her main care is that she's really damn cold and so is just doing things to distract her. We don't really have her process the magic element of this world much. Yeah, yeah. and she really ends up staying there while um, a lot. Arena goes back into the real world. Yeah. With, with the rationale being essentially that the reason she was brought to the capital was so Marantius and Turnabout could have something over Arena. Mm-hmm. That okay. if they had her in I'm possession... I'm sorry, Spencer. I, it, so it's M-I-R-N-A-T-I-U-S. And I, like in my head, I've been like, doing Marnatius, but I know that's prob- it's probably like Marnatius. Sure. But... Okay. I'm just coming to call him the czar. Whatever. Okay. I don't say these things out loud when I'm reading them. You, you're not reading uh, them aloud to a significant other? No, we actually read this one separately. Hmm. Both read it, though. Had a lot of fun with it. Uh, but yes, the czar, then. The czar, <laughs> the czar under instructions from the, from the demon, uh, believes that this nursemaid may be the key to, you know, catching her, preventing mm-hmm. her from constantly fleeing in ways they don't understand. And so Arena has smuggled her away to this other icy realm, and it just is really counting her blessings that she found this cabin so she doesn't immediately freeze to death. But, um, yeah, three our three main heroines are all, well, we have at least four main plots now in motion. Wanda and Sergei are sitting in the house, the Mandislavs, or Mandelstams, I'm blanking on their name right now, Miriam's parents, <laughs> and, St- and Stepan are frantically trying to go to Visnia in a way that very rapidly goes wrong for them. And Irina and Miriam are plotting ways to take down their um, unconsented to un, yeah, their significant others. And and that sort of plot is where we started this episode, um, and we get a lot of that. And I will say that I think that Miriam has the the harder task of figuring out how to make this happen. Yeah, because she goes to him quickly and puts forward this term and. 
in typical bargaining style, he basically proposes a deal that, well, you have to honor your promises, but I will consent to make a road for you to do this, and I will go myself because you're my queen and I would not dishonor you and myself by not accompanying you, if you can turn my three vaults of silver into gold. And I think she, just kind of surprised that he's even proposing terms, just agrees without any degree of investigation. Well, she which, knows this is going to be difficult. She does not know how difficult it is. She does not know that he has literally proposed the impossible upon her. Yes. And she also doesn't know that, like, he actually came into this ready to bargain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that in some ways catches her off guard, and so she just kind of seizes upon the first offer because she wasn't expecting any. And we- he is flabbergasted by the fact that she has agreed to this. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was like, this was an initial bid. I was expecting mm-hmm. a bit of haggling from here. Um, going some against ways the tropes. Some put off. Um, but... So I think this is the other side of this, where Arena is figuring this out with with the Czar, where we start to see a character coming into her own. Arena? Certainly. We've seen Mm -hmm. hints of it before, but she is not only rising to the occasion of solving this problem, she's running this kingdom and plotting what the the nature of the succession is going to be. Yeah, And, and so I think this is sort of one of the times where... Um, we have a little bit uh, in in the previous episode we talked about it, and we have a little bit of it with Miriam and her grandfather, and how Miriam is really taking over her father's business and and starts to be successful there. And we see the training that Arena got because she was not what her father wanted, and how that has basically made her so successful as these Arena. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and think, basically making those political alliances and, and and running the kingdom. Right. With one of her main objectives here being is that she does not intend that the Tsar will survive this plan. She's fully expecting and even planning on that he is going to be burned at the stake in the same way his mother is. It's probably part of the process of driving out this demon and ban- banishing it to hell. And so to make that a you know, palpable scenario for, or a palpable scenario for all of the other um, boyers and everybody else, she has to plot who's going to take over afterwards. Mm-hmm. And she rapidly puts various things in motion that, no, nah, this succession will be firmly wrapped up and prepared, and people will be happy to join in on this plan once I start putting it in public motion. Or at least okay with it. Um, yeah, but mostly, and- like, uh, friends of her father's are going to be supportive of this which doesn't get a lot of play but but i think is a a an incredibly important couple of sentences that are mostly tossed into the uh surprisingly fast going plot here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she she also even gets her father in on the on, on the plan too who proves eminently capable and eminently supportive in making this happen yeah. Um, in terms of his prior connection with the Jewish community, his knowledge about where various places they can go to make this happen are, and really making it happen. And also very much expressing his pride in Arena that of how much she's risen to the occasion, more than he ever expected she would. And I think uh, it's sort of, and we're skipping ahead a little bit in the book in, in terms of time wi- uh, timeline, but I think it's fascinating the things that the author doesn't want to spell out and doesn't want to talk about and is clearly not interested in, which is, for the most part, palace intrigue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, and I, I love that that she says, 
basically to the reader like i don't feel like writing about this and the and you know it was and arena was so happy that like she could in public say a couple of key phrases and her father knew exactly what was going on and what needed to be done in terms of like the political intrigue and so mm-hmm. i don't have to write about it but yeah, the stuff that the i'm actually like... interested in this is the sort of like a bas relief of a, a Martin novel, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it it helps that Arena has been given tools that basically allow her to skip palace intrigue, where she's yes. been given these these magical artifacts. That the moment she walks in a room, every plan, every a, attempt at undermining her is just thrown out the window because everyone's immediately entranced by her and just has to do whatever they can to be close to her and you know appeal to her. Yeah, she doesn't so, have to be good at this. <laughs> it helps that she's smart. It helps that she's capable, but she's given the tools necessary that everyone will do what she asks of them. Yeah. Including this demon. Yeah. Yes. Because somewhat to a surprise to me, she just kind of straight up just tells him what well, I guess it makes sense. Okay, demon, you want this you want this aspect of me, this connection to the mm-hmm. Staric world. How about I just give you the Staric King and we make a deal? Yeah, it's a pretty good carrot. Um, like the, the only person who is like kind of out on this whole thing is the czar himself, who is very confused. And unfortunately yeah, confused for and... the czar, literally no one in the book has ever cared about him. No, mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, from his mother forward, everyone yes. has just viewed him as a pawn in their wars and games, which has made him profoundly distrustful and profoundly disdainful of everyone around him. Mm-hmm. But he does buy in enough, at least, to say, well, I'm a little tired of this demon. Yeah. Demon's not great. (laughs) Who is slamming me against the floor Yeah, this literal demon that's, like, killing me and reviving me on a semi-regular basis. So you have some sort of plan to forever quench his hunger? Perfect. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll deal with this. I mean, yeah, though he, the, the amount that the czar is essentially a teenage girl and the desire for him to chew on ice chips is in, uh, insanely high, I thoroughly mm-hmm. appreciate. Sure. It, it's, it's, in, it's interesting, too, that the czar's suspicions about Arena at this stage are 100, 100% correct. He fully believes that she's conspiring to dethrone him or possibly have him killed, and he's right. She mm-hmm. very much wants to bring that about. But we also get the first inklings that she's developing at least a certain sense of sympathy for him. Because from the time they spend together and from him bringing him in on this plot, she realizes that he is as much a victim of this demon of anybody else, perhaps more so than a lot of other people, because he's never had an aspect of choice tied to it. This was imposed upon him from the moment before he was born. I was going to say, like, and so in the culmination of of these plannings to sort of get, get these two together, we really get... Um, a little bit more in-depth look of the czar from his point of view and and conversations that they have of his youth and childhood um mm-hmm. yeah. but before we get there we have a lot of <laughs> we have a chunk of plot that to cover in some of the other we're, characters we're, we're doing tastes of each as we go yes. yes um i think that the biggest plot we we need to deal with sort of Wanda and what's going on, although she's a little bit on pause. But we really need to get back to D- Miriam and how she's going to get back to the real world. Well, yeah. Well, let's do Wanda real quick, just so we can wrap it up. And then sure. Mir- um, Miriam's plot goes into where we're going next. Because like you said, Wanda's is kind of separate and removed, really, from most of where we are right yeah. now. Yeah. 
of where Wanda and Sergei are just kind of hanging out and making a nice home, while while the Mendelstems are caught in a blizzard and abandoned by their guide, or abandoned by their their um, their wagon driver, and are very soon about to die. Other than by they end up in the same loop, house and by magic. <laughs> However you want to explain it. Yes. It's a fairy tale. Like, this yes. is what happens it's fine. in fairy tales. <laughs> well, they also seem to very much suggest that this house is as far away as you need it to be at any given moment. There's a couple moments yeah. of where the distance to the house does not match what we've heard before, and it surprises the characters about yeah, where it, the house suddenly is. It feels a little Howl's Moving Castle. Like, it yes. is where it needs to Good be. Good comparison. Yeah. I mean, and um, but being partially in the Stark realm where the roads seem to yep, also c- move, move all will. the time, mm-hmm. like, th- this isn't, th- this is plot convenient, but it's also, like, written into the book that these things happen. Oh, yeah. Yes. M- magic, magic is a reflection of will. That's the basis of magic that we, as we see it in this world. And also a reflection of to what degree your will is overcoming something that is difficult or whatever else. So it well, it's and I will say it's it's will, but it's also, Spencer, it's contract law. Uh, yes, there is very much. A, <laughs> I love the rules lawyering that goes into so much of where this plot's going to wrap up in yeah. so many ways. And so I mean, let's are, quickly deal with Wanda so we can get to the rules lawyering and you can be very happy. It's essentially at this point they they group together at the witch's hut and then they all realize that oh shit Miriam exists we need to go to Visnia to, to, to check on her mm-hmm. and figure out what happens and so Wanda joins the uh, Mandelstams or uh, the sort of wedding party yeah. that is right. going to Visnia exactly. mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so everyone very appropriately coincidentally necessary for plot is all grouped together in Visnia with the exception of Miriam she's going to get there a second for the purpose of this plot. Arena's yes. there with her dad conspiring to make the plot happen about what they're going to do about both the demon, well, the demon and the demon, lots of demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wanda has now joined the grandfather's household for the purpose of planning out this wedding because the cousin's wedding is happening there. Mendelstems are settling in, still trying to desperately preserve their memory of their daughter and for the reason that they're present. And then we're on to their daughter, who is desperate to find a way to get there in time because she does not have much. Yeah, yeah being in an entirely different realm is a little bit more of a challenge, I think, than other characters are facing in this moment. Yeah, right. and so she I is. feel like we need to spend a little bit of time, because we haven't discussed the Star yes. realm basically at all. No, we um, haven't. And so um, we've gotten some inklings before, but we really are introduced to uh, a non-human plane realm of existence. And yeah, a, a and completely different kingdom and how things work. Sorry, go ahead, sir. And we, no, I was just going to say that we've talked a little bit about um, the kind of the servants who are assigned to her, um, and the fact that we're in a sort of ice realm and she's very isolated and all of that. But beyond that, we haven't we haven't really talked about much, and we really haven't talked about how she and this steric king interact in this realm either. So, Spencer, I feel like this is very near and dear to your heart. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, everybody has contractual obligations with everybody else. Mm -hmm. And then there's a very hierarchical order to to everything. And so... It's it's very much a pyramid system that everyone's bound to everybody else. And to the degree the person above you fails, you fail with them. Yes. Um, But also, 
Miriam has made a contract with her now surprisingly significant servants. Um, well, she, 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 she's made contracts both with him and with her three servants in different ways. Yes, but but with yeah. her significant other, she's basically made a contract where he has to answer three questions a day. In yes. exchange for not giving her her marriage rights. <laughs> Which I don't really know who made out better in that. Yeah, he seems very relieved also to not be doing this. He's so relieved, and he doesn't seem to really get that she's also happy about this. Yeah, no, this is... he he thinks that she is going to demand the sort of marriage bed because, like, it's better to have a, a half star <laughs> child or to just have sex. Like, I don't know what the end game she, is supposed th- to be. This here, is but... where we we lose like twenty five sexy house points. <laughs> It, That's it, true. It may... The other, the uh, uprooted or whatever it is, would have had the scene. I mean, not, not, not to not to not to bring an extra religion to this, but from a Catholic perspective, if their marriage is not consummated, they're not really married. Uh, they could, it could be annulled or yeah. backed out of. She doesn't really bear the full rights of his wife until that happens. And that I, does so in some seem ways... to be a thing that is like playing here. That's um, not that yeah, if she just, can just a Catholic to... thing. I know, it's other things too, but Catholics are famous about the annulments they're willing to issue with respect to it. Yeah. Um, I, so it, I think somewhat relevant to this book, it is very relevant for Jewish ceremonies because like the sort of end-all and be-all of the marriage ceremony is the couple goes into a room and witnesses stand outside of the room and there's kind of a... It probably doesn't happen in modern days, but there's kind of an assumed thing that happens in said room with two witnesses outside making sure nobody else goes in there. We are increasingly getting closer to Dunkin' Egg territory as this episode goes on. The betting ceremony is happening. Well, yeah, essentially he traded a dragon's egg to make sure the betting ceremony didn't happen in the form of three three questions answered each day, every day, at night. Mm -hmm. Which is a part of a ritual that they do. Uh... But she needs to be very precise with her questions because even, you know, the slightest thing that could be interpreted as a question, he will find a way to weasel out. This is very much under classic fable fairy tale rules for how this should go. So what you're saying is the language in the contract is incredibly important because depending on how you interpret said language, the outcome of of the agreed-upon terms varies. Oh, yes, and we get many aspects of contract played out here, like with Irina and Chernobyl. He's very uncomfortable with the fact she's not asked for consideration in exchange for what she's offering him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but with respect to the Stargate Kingdom, because of these questions, because of setting down terms, because of having her own servants, we see her roam a lot more now. We pr- talked about her going on her, I think you described it as her coronavirus wagon, uh, ride to the snow. Um, <laughs> she also just explores the, the diamond... Um, palace itself and sees that it's a a very rigidly stratified system that they're in, but also that it's in some ways a kingdom in decline. That a lot of what she sees indicates that this is a world that is dying. And what the Stariot King has been kind of what the Stariot King has been doing is what we find proven in this section in terms of bringing out winter and increasing winter by means of what she's doing and converting things to gold has been trying to desperately preserve what otherwise is a kingdom that is on the verge of failing. Their pools are, their pools have gone dry. Their ability to harvest new food is constantly declining. This place isn't in a great state, and there's an, as- an aspect of desperation that's going into the Stargate King's decisions. 
as we learn, and even marrying her. Um, and so the other thing that we get and then start to understand at, at the sort of the close of this uh, segment on Miriam is um, the the aid that her uh, handmaidens and, and then chauffeur, uh, her chauffeur, uh, give to her um as yeah. as sort of mm-hmm. all of this is going on basically these these two Staric women are helping her out and showing her around bringing her meals and sort of catering to her to most of her needs um and become a lot more friendly once she decides to give them names because she like initially they just weren't talking to her or essentially responding to her at all what what's the name they start to call her as a result of what they view as her entirely surprising, difficult to understand generosity. It's something like open-handed. Open hands, yes. Yeah. Um, and Which I think even... that's like a 50%, like she's very generous and a 50% she, with an open hand, changes silver into gold. But yeah, it, it, it still just reflects how much of an anathema that her, that to, their, to their society she is, but in a way they find liberating it's giving them avenues and potential for advancement and a new future beyond anything they ever would have been careful capable of but with respect to this latest bet which they agree in many ways to bind themselves to to help her bring it about it also could potentially spell their downfall of not only them but of their families too or or their success um or them rising to a level in the society rivaled by few (laughs) excuse me (coughs) and there's a there's a term for this, right? Noblesse oblige. Well, yeah, <laughs> within the novel, there's a term for this. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, which, sorry, was meant to have a question mark at the end because I can't remember what the term is actually called. But there's a th- yeah. there's a there's a system that they're dealing with here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to deal with the fact that Miriam has named them, and we've talked yes. a little bit about the significance of her naming them before. At least we've hinted at at it. Um, mm-hmm. But once she makes this deal with the Staric King, that if she can kind of deal with these three vaults, vaults, vaults. of silver, um, that she is essentially going to get everything her heart desires, which at this moment is going to, to her go grandparents' to her house, wedding. to go to her yeah. cousin's wedding and dance until dawn. Yeah. Or she has, she, she has she to has get there before dawn. the dancing ends, yes, right? Which, she's, yeah. prom- she's promised yeah. her cousin a dance. Yes. Um, and she gets she gets these servants to agree, like, well, our fates are bound now. Right. In a way, I didn't understand when I gave you names. Yeah. We're kind of all in this together. I now know your daughter, and I feel would re- really feel bad if she dies as a result of what I've just done. Because if I fail this, she assumes, probably correctly, my life is forfeit. Yes. This, this is the great gamble. Yes, and, and so her, she has, her servants are now tied to exactly what that fate is. Yeah, so she yes. has three days to convert these three large Increasing in size. Yes. Right. Um, First as, one's big enough. As fits, you know... First one is is uh, baby bear. The second one is mama bear, and the third one is very definitely yeah, papa bear. Really, papa bear, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, the, go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, I was just said. But by the point, by the time by the time we get to the third room, we've reached a level of just utterly ludicrous. This room yes. is this is no longer a vault. This is a stadium sized space that is just full to the rafters. There's no room to even walk between the piles of silver that are in here. Yep. This is an impossible task. The Stark mm-hmm. King knew it was impossible. 
and fully expected her to investigate before agreeing to because it was impossible. Like, he probably would have consented if she just worked him down to, like, one vault. Instead, she's on to three. In a way that he's really uncomfortable with because he, more than she does, knows what this could mean if she succeeds. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, where we get to the sort of most fairy tale aspect of this. We have a lot of sort of fantasy things that happen after this, but this this concept of the the sort of three vaults, the impossible task, um, Mm -hmm. and the like, somewhat yeah, the somewhat ridiculous payoff at the end of it, right? And and the very fairy tale solution, and basically, yes, as she passes her hand over silver and it turns into gold by sort of a her sort will. of alchemical it's the magic she it's her magic this is yes. the magic she has now because of what she accomplished originally when she earned her title as the star queen accomplishing yes. that task gave her this ability in reflection yes. of what ability she has in the real world now it turns out that there are some limits to that when she is passing her hands over the silver like it can only be can't can't move too fast. Like a, she can't move too fast, and it can only be a layer maybe too deep when she's doing it. And it takes um, some effort. And it takes some yeah. effort. Yeah. And so she's it takes some time doing this and doing this and doing this, and she legitimately gets through the first vault. Mm-hmm. And starts dedicating herself to the, the second. Rules. But like you yeah. said, <laughs> she assigns her servants to the task. How excited were sure. you about? this rules lawyering oh giddy because a it was rules lawyering and b it was very in keeping for how many so many of these classic fairy tales are resolved it's very much as like you said sir this is a very fairy tale moment that this works that this solution is in keeping with the rules and the demon is forced to honor that um she instructs her servants to ensure that well the terms of the deal is that all the silver in the vault is turned to gold yes or or at the end of the, at the end of the third day, all the silver that's in the vault will be gold. So I think that's the literal terms of it. Mm-hmm. And so her objective is doing well. She tells her her servants, "Okay, ensure that there is nowhere near as much silver as there is presently in that vault at the time the third day ends." Especially that I'm, third vault, because it it seems to me that the description of the third vault is even if she had started there, she couldn't have gotten through that in three days. Yeah. No, I mean she. I think she barely, she, by the end of the day two, just barely finishes the second vault. And the third vault is larger than both of them by a factor of numerous times. Yes. It's impossible. So let's but, cart it somewhere else. And so the two uh, female handmaidens and the uh, chauffeur, I still love that name. <laughs> the other two names at least have some identifying traits. This one is just his profession. That's so lazy. Uh, all proceed to just move all of the silver into side tunnels as fast as they can, with him even getting his sleigh in there so they can more efficiently haul it out. Mm-hmm. It's a very Patrick Star dealing with problems. Just yes. take the silver and move it somewhere else. Yes, and it works! Because, I mean, I might as well just jump to it. At the end of the third day, she they get enough out that she's able to turn the last coins that have been left behind remaining into gold. At the exact time the start king comes out. And yes. she does this, and, like, funky, like, attach the sleigh to, like, a sheet. And so she can just, like, hold her hand and, and you know, conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she has a lot of things involving sheets and carpets to more efficiently go through these coins. She is the Ford Motor Company of the Stark Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> but how would you guys describe the reaction of the Stark King once he sees this? Gobs- so wasn't... Gobsmacked. Yeah. Gobsmacked, but not angry. 
in any I don't picture no. anything resembling anger or offense or feeling like he's been tricked. No, he's it was a contract. Yeah, it, it was a contract. And if anything, this has led him to honor her more. I think yes. we, they even started having conversations here about, I regret and it is on me that I did not give you your, your due earlier. Yeah. You've clearly mm-hmm. proven mm-hmm. me wrong. You are worthy of being my lady in full respect, and it is a crime upon me that I shall have to work to repay for that I ever mistreated you. Yes, I, I think that that was the word that I was going to use as well, which is worthy. Like, it proved her yeah. worthiness, and it proved that, like, she really was a lady of the Stark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, again, more than her, knows that she's accomplished another impossible task, and she did it in the Staryak realm, an even greater task than anything given before. He can't even fully expect what effect this is going to have upon her. She is worthy of the position. But what magical effect this is going to bring? I don't think he's even aware. He may even just a bit intimidated what it could be. And and so it's at this point that the promise... She basically tries to fulfill her obligations to her uh, servants. Which right. is mm-hmm. uh, they helped her and basically allowed her to accomplish this task. And so she basically said, like, you know, yes, you've been like you're sort of tied to me and, you know, I succeed, you succeed. But gold is held in such high regard in this society. Bring me every piece of silk that you have and I will change it into gold. Mm-hmm. And basically in her accomplishments, she has become so much better at it. And Mm -hmm. we kind of see the same thing before she gets into the Staric realm, where she started collecting on her father's debts, and then she started basically investing in material goods with she then like folded back into capital. And so we see that as she uh, becomes facile in any given thing, she gets so much better at it and expands. And I feel like this is like a second, like the reflection of the same ability in the real world of her prowess with making money and having that that sort of uh business uh geared mind and how that relates to the magical powers that she has in the stark land yeah we are on our way to late stage stage capitalism um (laughs) what what she accomplishes is exponential exponential inflation yes yes (laughs) Um, we also get to see here that, you know, the Stark King fully intends to honor his terms, but he also just reveals to her that he can control time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Take as much time as you want to get ready. I'm the Stark King, dammit. I get to decide when we get there. (laughs) It's like, when do you want to arrive? At the beginning of the wedding? At the end? Like, what are we doing here? Just, (laughs) you let me know, and we'll make that happen. (laughs) Would you like to arrive before you even started turning it into silver gold? Because I could totally do that. This is not an issue. Me setting this three-day thing was entirely intended to make this hard on you. I feel like of all the powers that have been enumerated here, this is, like, the one in that would be, like, if this fairy tale were a rom-com, like, this would be (laughs) the, like, oh, so I can take as long as I want to get ready and we'll arrive on time. This would be, like, Mm -hmm. the plot turning point. Uh, oh, no. The Rocky music would be playing in the background <laughs> for this whole thing. The, 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 the hair straightening montage. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. This, this is yeah, this is perfect. This is very much a mix of the sudden moment of where you see everybody getting ready, preparing for that moment that seems to happen in like twenty seconds of screen time, but really covers like four months. This is possible now. I would also like to point out that this is like the the power that makes everything go, and it's the mm-hmm. least explained of anything going on. Well. 
it's one of our first indications of how much this reality is tied to the Stargate King. And this becomes very key later for what, how dangerous Chernobyl can be to the situation, is that this world and all of its people and the magic that sustains it is all tied to him. He is the lodestone. Like you've already heard, everyone that is bound to somebody is connected, their fate is tied to him. And now we see that even the realms and the rules of, you know, how time and physics operate are controlled by him at whim. Which, if he falls, literal reality kind of ceases to exist over there. Mm -hmm. Which sets up what we're going to see here of where now everyone's in motion headed to Visnia for a wedding. And, well, Miriam, Miriam and the Stark King kind of show up late, so I guess we can address how everybody else goes to the wedding yeah, first. I, I was going to say we could borrow from a different podcast and say, and that happens. Well, yeah, a, a wedding. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, before Arena and, and the Tsar get there, we can kind of just say, and that happens in the sense that a wedding starts to occur, and it's in very classic Jewish Orthodox tradition. And Wanda and various Gentiles in attendance are very confused yeah. and very uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable in the fact they're even in a city. There are too many people and too many uh, things yeah. and too many noises. Yes, I, I, but I we think have that all we ended up in the same place. Yeah. So, yes. Well, so we've. Well, in one of the two places that we're going to end up being, but well, in, yes. it, at the grandfather's house, and we sort of see how much um, Wanda's been adopted into the family. Oh, yeah. She's a daughter at this point. Um, yes. And, and basically she's... how well she's being treated, which very much surprises her. And it, it, it's sort of right. one of those things that... that is is uh, and we'll probably discuss this on on one of our later episodes like basically wanda's accomplishment where where she she sort of finds a a family to accept her and for our other point of view that we have i, I think we, we all found the most annoying point of view but still happy for him <sighs> Stepan has also found Look a mom Stepan, yeah okay <laughs> so he, he's he, and really we see most of the wedding possibly all eyes. of the wedding through Stepan's eyes which is fucking infuriating I just yeah. want to say, I think the author decided to throw in, like, a uh, not quite normal, like, a little, like, autistic point of view, and I hate it, and I don't think it was worth putting in, and I think it was a problem, and I never want to address it again. Okay. Okay, so we don't have to talk happens. about it again. I would just like to register my displeasure. Oh, that step-on's chapters happen. Yes. Yeah. Not, not it, the plot, because obviously the plot was coming, but him... Him in particular. Yes. Um, Thank you. I, I think we, I think we've said before that, I, at least my stance is, the fact that there are more than three point of views I view as a flaw. Even if I like the fact we briefly see through the Tsar's eyes in like two chapters, I think it breaks the flow in a way that's very unnecessary. You could have done this yeah. in three point of views and I think it would have been a lot better and we wouldn't have had to see through Stepan's eyes for like a legitimate fifth of this book. I think... And I would like to point out that like I think that... <sighs> I mean, I think that thematically and kind of what this book is trying to do and wanting to do is better served through only occurring through the our three main female characters' points of view. Right. Our three mirroring heroines. Uh, They're yes. following very similar related plots. That works. That's very interestingly and well interesting and well done. And then you break the flow of it by putting in the idea of this kid who's going to speak in the mo I mean... <laughs> I, again, I don't know if she's doing a it. kid. It's fine. Okay, we're done. We're done. <laughs> no, we're done. We're done. No, so we're, it's hard so, not to, though. <laughs> it, it's hard not. To. So, so I will say, I think that there, I think that there would have been two other points of view that would have, or or two, one point of view that we had that I liked, 
I did like mm-hmm. having the point of the view of the czar. I, yeah, I did too. I think that if we had one other point of view, I would have chosen the Star King. I think and that I part think, of the point, though, is that you don't have any access to what he's thinking or doing. Right. right. And the- I, I feel like it would have it would have been a much more interesting book if there were two points where you got to shift in a point of view from our three main heroines. And one mm-hmm. was to show that the czar had this internal conflict, which you kind of could have gotten from a different point of view, but it's kind of interesting to see from a main point of view. And... Mm-hmm you would have had the same like mirroring thing where the start king realizes basically the mistake that he made it mistake might not be the right word but like in how well he chose yeah miriam yeah. i, I, I feel just like wonder the... go ahead spencer i'm sorry uh, sorry just very briefly i feel like if you have, if you do the start king as a point of view you then have to do chernabog for the to complete the con- the constant mirroring images kind of view and then well i guess that's what i mean more by time having bizarre. yeah yeah, I mean, but but that's I guess what you base you kind of have maybe not Chernobog's point of view, but you have the like the what vessel. you expected to be an evil villain point of view who isn't. Who isn't? Well, he's he's still a, he's still a very unpleasant murdering <laughs> asshole. Let's not forget that that he's those also a two little bit character- of an idiot. <laughs> he's he, he's Percy. He's let's Lockhart. go into that. <laughs> there there's. He's a Lockhart with legitimate skills. There are, it's a very narrow set, but he... I mean, let's go into it a little bit, because we have to get Arena and the Tsar there, and yeah. get them getting there is interesting yeah. to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but we learn that he is an eminently skilled artist, and in his ideal world, he would be able to just kind of be... He'd have a patron, he'd be able to do his art, and that would be it. He doesn't want the world. He doesn't want the position. He doesn't want any of this. Or he would be a second son and be allowed to kind of like fuck off with Meghan Markle to do whatever he wants. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He is very disappointed that that Arena is not (laughs) That William was. Yes. Well, he's also upset that William is dead. Yeah. I mean, he would want, he wants to be cared for. He wants a life of luxury, but he doesn't want anything else that comes with it. He desperately doesn't want any of the responsibility <laughs> that comes with his position. Yeah, at the same time, he, though, he's very uncomfortable with the fact that Arena is so adept at taking it all up and away from him. He just, it further demonstrates to him how easily she could replace him. Yes. Which comes awkwardly a little bit later, but I think it's fascinating how it's like he gets exactly what he wants and he hates it. And there's well, a quote that I that I love. Um, that's a quote of something else, but it was in in West Wing, which is um, when the gods want to torture us, they answer our prayers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he, yep. he gets it, but it getting what he wants so fundamentally undermines his understanding of reality that it does he cannot be happy with it. He spends a large portion of their chapters as they're slowly going to Viznia, just showing everyone he possibly can pictures he's drawn of Arena saying, tell me what this looks like. Explain to me why you find this attractive. My world is built around me being pretty and pretty things, and this does not square. And um, no one gives him an answer he likes, because apparently the magic also extends to pictures, which just thoroughly frustrates him, particularly since he drew the damn picture. Um... But they journey over these hills and valleys to get to Viznia. All the while, she is developing more and more sympathy for him. Um, yes. And we she find out a little bit his, about his background. She finds out more about his background, but she also starts to admire what his abilities are. Um, she very much appreciates his art. She 
mm-hmm. starts to in some ways become enamored with the fact that he is, though a thoroughly broken individual, has a certain degree of charm and to her, he's attractive. Um, and so it starts to give her a certain degree of guilt over what she plans to do. Not enough that she's going to stop this plan from being in motion, but she's second-guessing herself to a certain degree. At least she's, a lot more than Miriam is at the same point. She's less comfortable with him being caught up in the dealing right. with Chernobog and more yeah. like, well, ideally, we just catch up Chernobog in this, but I'm still right. okay with you probably being collateral yeah, right. damage. Yeah, no, right. she starts to do the kind of separation between between the human and the demon, right? Which is an mm-hmm. actual literal separation <laughs> yes. in in this character. Um, right. Which is not something that you can you can say about at least what Miriam feels at this point about the Stark King. If anything, Miriam's even more committed to killing the Stark King once she finds out that her actions have been contributing to what he's been doing in the human world. Once yes. she finds out that her gold, which is essentially imprisoning the sun in almost literal magical effect, has been aiding the, the, the wintry hellscape that is the world of man... She is committed to the idea that this man must die today. All while Arena is having doubts about, I'm, this plan is necessary, but a victim of this will be what could arguably be called an innocent victim, an unwilling participant in all that has occurred. Now, I don't think that's entirely fair. He had, what's, it's like, it's like reviewing Jamie Lannister as a character. He is, as much as his arc improves, he is always still the guy that pushed Bran out of a window. The Tsar is always the guy that planned to have a demon eat you alive. Yes, indeed. Well, but it's also, like, she, he's had a demon inside of him since birth. Yes, and he, and this is where the part where you can debate with her, is that he has willingly, to agree, gone along with the idea of the demon consuming who knows how many people. Right. Now, what ability he has to resist is a good question for philosophers to ponder. What options he had to get out of this? Who knows? As you said, it's all the more difficult because he's never had a life without this. He has no concept of reality without the demon. And also, we so certainly thoroughly- get... <laughs> we all talked. Uh, Sarah, you first. Well, I was going to say, we do certainly get a lot of evidence, um, at least about, about the sort of physical and mental anguish that the czar is in at any given point in time. And like, I, I am very sympathetic. And when I was reading this portion of the book, particularly, I was very sympathetic to the czar trying to do whatever he was, he needed to do Mm -hmm. to alleviate this or mitigate it in some way. Right. And I would also say, um, that, you know, in the whole like nature versus nurture thing, he's like, yeah, I had this demon in me. And then my brother was a sadistic asshole and basically raised me that way and taught me. Yes. This. Yes. I, I debate in my own head whether to what degree that is true or through his lens, but it is what he tells us. Yeah. I mean, we have no other evidence to the contrary. <laughs> yeah. All, all we've heard before and all we know is that he worked with the demon that both his brother and his father died. I mean, yeah, I think no. his mother worked with the demon for that. Well, some members of his family die afterwards, don't they? I th- oh, maybe. No, I don't know. It, it, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's the regent. I think it's the regent. In, in oh, family okay. That he, that to kind of get it, to the succession to the throne. Right. Because br- you're right. The brother and the father are killed by the mom. 
Um, but it's the regent and everybody else that are killed thereafter. Um, <laughs> well, there's family and there's... That's a lot of people getting wiped out around here. <laughs> so so one, there's one a whole I'm... other book to be written, probably by Martin. Mm-hmm. That... <laughs> About those dynamics. <laughs> exactly. Not to be written here. Yes, no, this is not the book no. or the author to of... do that. In terms of political involvement, I think it's best expressed by the fact that Morantius can't even be persuaded to throw coins to people as they go along the streets. He's so not engaged in this at all that all the various actions that Arena tries to even talk him into to just do the base token minimum to appear like a czar, he can't do. He can get the image down fine. He's even frustrated that she's not as adept at that aspect of it. But in terms of the actual inner moving parts that are run- key to running this kingdom... He can't even be talked into that in the process of going to Visnia. And I guess I, f- I feel like I-, I know you have come down on he's a terrible person and that's fine. But we... He's not good. He's a victim, but he's I not 100% good. I agree, yes. But we also, like, I-, I think it is, we see more into his character because at first we see him just, like, tearing her a new one about wearing the same thing a second time. Yes. Yeah. But we and realize then we see later why. that the reason is is that he's constantly being brutalized by this thing and is used this as a means of cover so to hide the fact that he's essentially a battered child. Yes, and his clothing and everything around him is constantly being destroyed and sometimes remade. Right, which is a hundred percent the reason that she gave us the point of view characters in his into his eye is to humanize him and give us a degree of explanation to why he is as he is and and a greater understanding so we can understand why, why certain characters view him in certain light and have a more well-rounded view of him. I think it, I get, still think it breaks the kind of well-structured that she had gone with, but it's why she did it. So um, can I ask, and I feel like this is probably a question that we should be talking about in uh, an episode that is doing more sort of general things, but we're here right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> here we are. Um, yes. So if, if those points of view or what if for example the czar's point of view had been instead of an actual actual chapters from specifically his point of view and instead a sort of like interstitial or interchapter kind of i don't know done in italics or whatever way you want to do it of actually the demon and the steric king as sort of like non-human players in this whole thing, would that have been more effective for you all? Mm, me, no, because I think it. I think so much. It, it almost require a fundamental rewrite of the whole book. Because, like you said earlier, Sarah, the fact that the Star King is not revealed, has mm. secrets, keeps things to himself, is a fundamental aspect of his character. It makes the ending all the more important that he finally drops those folds to let somebody in to that degree because of the power it provides over them. These are beings that exist on others not having power over them. And so if we of the reader get that insight into their characters, we're getting that power over them. So I, and so you it, like it, want the, 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 the sort of demon and the king to remain separate, which I totally understand. Um, yeah. Could there be some sort of um, sort of writerly device by which, and I am back in Austin now, like, let's go back to Jane Austen world for this, for this moment. Um, It's a lot of similarities right now, honestly. Well, I mean, there there really are, because we're dealing with marriage plots, essentially, right? (laughs) Yes. Um, Totally. Like, let's say that clearly based on our, our, our discussion that we have just had, we have to know some of the czar's perspective. 
The mm-hmm. only yes. way the plot works is if we actually know some of what's going on with the czar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think we're all on the same page that the idea that we are actually getting a, a point of view from the czar is a little unsatisfying in terms mm-hmm. of the like holistic structure of the book. Yeah, I, so I really agree with you. I think that there are interludes that you could do that would that other authors do that I think succeed and fail in various measures but I think they're hard yeah yeah I mean I think you could do um Sanderson does this in in one of his series where you get a little bit more of the world with Mm -hmm. like you have your main characters and then like just completely other ones and so I think a way to do it would have been to have like uh, points of view of the czar like as a child and yeah. see like his point of view from like him interacting with his brother or mo- mother or something like that and see that he's much more of a pitiable character than the evil character and, well, and you I'm, know yeah i mean i think that makes sense and i'm wondering if you could even do it still within the the frame of the three main female characters where you could have a sort of like found diary scene, right? Which is which contrived, is, yes, but you would at least still stay within the frame. So, which so, is interesting because we, uh, sorry, one, one quick point. We get that. We get that yeah. Marina's scene. We get her viewing him through the mirror in a way he can't see. No, that's We get true. her flashbacks totally, to another child. Yeah. And that's the way we're introduced to the actual like pain, pain of what he's going through and the sympathy that we feel as readers. You're totally right, Spencer. Like we get that. We don't need this other perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think you could that. you could flesh that out more and not do these other these other point of view characters. Let's put a pin in this. Mm-hmm. It's and a fun. It's a fun I'm point. Sorry, what's, this what's, is what's, my what's, main concern. I hundred percent. I appreciate it. I think it's great. And a hundred percent. Let's give it its own episode. Like okay. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll right. do an episode of characters, and we'll do okay. an episode right. of the world. And uh, and I'm just very concerned uh, with these extra point of view characters. Yes. And no, uh, we've t- we've talked before for various books that we've liked aspects, but how could we rewrite them to make them better? I think it's a fascinating topic for this because this is a good book. I like it a lot. But it's got flaws that I think detract from what makes it successful. And so yep. talking it's about like those eighty percent re- successful and twenty percent. Why did you do that? Yes. Yeah. So okay. Let's right. make I'll, let's make I'll, an episode of that. I'll put a pin in it. Yeah, we're coming back to it. It's a great point. But our character. Let's finish plot because we're we still, <laughs> still like a hundred pages left of this book. Um, and three plot lines. <laughs> yeah. So we're at a wedding. The wedding is happening and it's going fine. Then the Tsar and the Tsarina show up, and they enter into the wedding. And it's then thereafter still going fine, because the grandfather's utterly unflappable. Um, despite being pretty much the one key player in this that's utterly not in the loop about what's going on, he still kind of rises to the occasion for each of these sudden surprise entrances into his house. I mean, if, if this was a set in the U.S., he 100% would have a jug of whiskey and a shotgun, and be on a porch like this is the like things happen around this man and he you come to him for wisdom but like nothing is going to like a war could go on and Mm -hmm. like his house will still be there and he will be on the porch in a rocking chair like right And, and appropriately he's literally built the foundations of the city the underground the walls are all him and he has the unique knowledge about them um but 
Zara and Zarina show up, things go fine. Wedding continues, then at the last hour possible, because of course he did it this way, because he's of course not going to show up early, because he totally doesn't want to spend anything, any more time here than he has to, the Stargate King and Miriam show up. And I think it's fair to say things... Ra- no, actually, I've got the timing of this wrong. The Stargate King and Miriam show up before the Zara and Zarina do, don't, don't they? Briefly. I'm trying to remember how the Zara and Zarina end up showing up, because... I, I, they show up last, because just, like, the Stargate King actually last. dances um, at the damn wedding. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and because Miriam is very excited to just be there with her family for a while. Right. And briefly, this goes great. Even with the Stargate King, which everyone at first is just freaked out about, but the, the grandfather again just announces, we're at a wedding, everyone start partying now. And they do. And, you know, he participates in the dance and everything is going great. And then the Tsarina and Tsar show up and immediately we have a giant Godzilla demon battle in the middle of this guy's house. Yeah. Um, and basically, I, so I guess I should ask you guys, how did you expect this meeting to go? Because it didn't go as I expected, I guess. Uh, I, I'm thoroughly amused that our main characters had no expectations and no plan whatsoever for how this meeting was going to go, other than they have a demon-binding chain. That's the well, sum total of what they've planned this out. And that is actually sort of plan B, right? Plan yeah, A right. is that Put them these in the same two room. entities in the world will take care of each other. Right. Very much so. Plan B is pretty much what Irina works out with her dad about, okay, we got a chain, we got a place under the walls, we can stuff the king there, the czar there, once things start, once all this is worked out. Because they're kind of assuming that Chernobog's going to win outright. Right. And it seems uh, to mm -hmm. be what they planned. So I guess that was my question. Like, did you expect that the Stargate King was essentially, like, hilariously more powerful than Chernobog? Uh, No. I don't Mm-mm. think I was. I, no, I, I was not picturing at all. a matter, a matter, antimatter, both really weakened and then tough decisions on the part of our main characters for what they will do with, with these people. Um, but no, well, and this was part of the reason that it was so confusing that this fight happens at like twenty percent left to go in the book. Yeah, yeah. Which, and you're again, like, well, book, wait, wait, where are we going from here? <laughs> and but how how often have we had that thought in this book now? A couple Fair. of times. But the other yeah. thing I will say is like I think that this. And again, I think this will be uh, one of our future episodes. This really cements the magic of names. Yes. Yes. Into like yes. how Which is much like the real thing of this book. Yeah. How much power that really has? Because basically, mm-hmm. the Starry King goes, "Dude, I know your name. We're done here." And and, and he, you don't know mine. It's yeah. interesting too because he he knows it walking in. It's not not like he has to be informed this or anyone leaks it. The moment he's in the room, he knows he has this demon's card. And yeah, any there's, effort a, demon... there's an interesting prequel to kind of get to, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he starts to suggest that this demon has been gunning for him for a while. Futilely, entirely futilely. And as we learn later, he, in somewhat fear this demon may eventually find a way, has been trying to snuff out all life or warmth on the human plane to stop it. Um, but... At least in this confrontation, it is decidedly one-sided. Um, yeah, and the Starry King basically goes, "Nope, I'm I'm the best here, and no one can overpower me." And then basically everyone's like, "Oh crap, we didn't think it was going to go this way. Um, <laughs> this is kind let's, of confusing." Let's bind the Starry King. Right. Let's bind right. the Starry King, and they can't bind him. And they 
They don't. They get close. They they, they get it. They get it around him. They, they get it around him, and it doesn't do anything. Well, it at least keeps him from killing them for a few seconds. I it's, I they, don't think so. I think it's his, basically his agreement with Miriam that keeps him from mm. like destroying the place. And it's I'm not so sure. Oh okay. no, I think it's yeah. I think it's the magic that stops him. Right. I, I think it's the magic of his agreement with Miriam rather than the silver chain because he breaks the silver chain basically immediately and it's but i think he's weakened by the whole thing sure i i I think i think it's large part they just don't get a good seal on it at first that they're trying to desperately pull it taunt and he they they're like four five regular people and he's the embodiment of all that is winter sure but i guess what i the reason that i don't I think that even if they had it taught like it wouldn't work is because once he is actually under their power, the chain wraps itself around him. Okay. Like it yes. doesn't require is... their input basically. And, and it's sort of a symbol of whether he is bound by the rules of the, of what's going on or not. And it's basically his, uh, mir- like his agreement with Miriam and her desire to bind him that ends up entrapping him. Possible. I, I viewed it as more of they've got it 50% of the way there and that's enough to prevent him from actively murdering them. Though, if the if Chernobog had not returned, had not come back out of the fire and stepped back into things, it would have gone up. He would have easily killed them all. Um, it's really, in my view, Chernobog returning, coming back around that seals the deal and seals the Stargate King's fate, at least for now. As well as Miriam intervening in two to thoroughly bind him which again to my surprise he holds no rage no outrage no offense to her at all for this if anything he no, views it seems as his to be due. still yeah still a sort of transactional sort of thing right he you know in some ways sees this as his penance for ever doubting her and treating her not... the way that he did basically yes. he realized like i and this is where i think it would be like around this point where i think his point of view would be interesting because like he basically comes to the real realization that she's way closer to his equal if not you know equal or above him at this point in time and he's while you know it started in the uh changing of the storerooms he's just like oh like, I've been assuming that I've been making these bargains and I've been dealing with somebody who absolutely didn't know what they were talking about and had no care in the world and was just being dumb. Mm-hmm. I've been completely played. And again, if there were a rom-com, there would be stupid music playing right now and, <laughs> and you know, hearts in his eyes or whatever. Yes. He's mm-hmm. fine. I mean, as he, he said it before, but now more than ever, he has seen her worth. He understands that. He values her in the terms of their kingdom in a way he never has before. It's just a shame that this is a moment of when he's fully expecting that he and his kingdom and all of his people are now going to die. Yes. And so he's been like well and truly caught in this moment. And is going to the secret chamber. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The secret chamber that the dad built because only he was willing to talk with the Jews and wanted to plan a way out of his newly acquired asset in terms of Viznea. Um, And yeah, he gets there. And it's kind of at this moment that Miriam realizes, oh shit, this is bad. I just really have put two and two together. I now know more about the Staryk people. If he falls, all the people that I actually do care about, which don't really include him yet, other than I have a certain degree of sympathy for him now, are also all going to melt and die. Yeah, this yep. is a real, a real fucking problem. 
Um, and we yeah. have we have the czar and his sort of demon crippled on the floor at this point. Yeah, demon. All of is, which is a problem. Yeah, the, the poor czar is just the demon has utterly shattered the czar trying to attack the Star King. And even now that these sort of halfway healed him, the czar is a wreck. He's a problem. Yep. He's a walking corpse. Yeah. I, I feel um, like this is what happens when people try and test out ragdoll physics. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's interesting because we kind of see the sympathies that Arena had for the czar now move to Miriam. Basically trying to answer the question of to what degree can innocence suffer and this still be a success? To what yes. degree can I sacrifice innocent people and still call this a victory? Yes. And Arena originally came to the conclusion of, I'm willing to sacrifice this. And this is basically the mindset she kind of adopts from here. Whereas Miriam is not. She goes from, I am willing to sacrifice this to, there are other factors at play here. Yeah. I mean, so each of them basically decide that who their people are. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or at yeah. least who they're not willing to sa- who they're not willing to exclude from their people. That yes. Miriam's aiming to protect all worlds, including the Staryaks, even even with what they brought about else. Arena has drawn a, a hard line of my people are the people of my kingdom. Those are the people I can protect, those are the people I care about. And as we can see, now that the Staryak King has been bondage, spring literally just happened. It's like <laughs> No transition. Fuck immediately. Like literally overnight, everybody's overjoyed. This is crazy. It was overnight. Yeah. This is straight cartoon physics of where snow melts, daisies immediately spring up. It's like all of the wheat that we were all starving because we weren't having is just under the snow. Okay. And there are like, and and it's to such an extent that there are like strawberries everywhere. Right. Animals mm-hmm. are coming out and appearing out of nowhere. The squirrels are back and they're okay. The regional people she ever aimed to protect. It's very uh, Snow White. There's a lot of comparisons yeah. to varying fairy tales over the course of this. But, and so uh, Miriam understands what effect that this is going to have in the Star Kingdom with the people that she loves. Right. Because Cherubog is basically like, I'm going to enjoy you like a fine wine. And that you... It's, this is pretty much what his no, this mindset is. We, is to no, yeah, you're right. This I, I, is I what don't he's disagree. Says, yeah. But again, that was an app comparison. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he, he wants the Stark King to break and give up his name, and thereby surrender into his surrender himself into Chernobog's power. Uh, to which Chernobog's basically offering consideration for this. I'll let you die quickly. Um, the Stark King, and this is a fun thing to debate: which element it is pride or dedication to his people? I think maybe a mix of the two is un flinching even in spite of in spite of the pain in spite of being pretty much melted and consumed by the Star King more metaphorical than literal but still happening and arena's plotting what she's going to do with respect to you know the future of the kingdom maybe even moving a little bit away from the succession plan wanda's settling into a household miriam well, is so, home so with wanda her family basically plays a major role in capturing the Star king because she's yes. essentially the power of love and family Power of love and family, but also a little bit um, Brienne of Tarth. Oh, she's she's strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. her whole family line is strong. Sergi is a big guy too, and so this and I, he's I think probably like an of like a fifteen ish and like bigger than like most of everybody that we meet. Um, but yes, yeah. she's at, basically for the consideration of 
essentially saving the kingdom, she gets a letter um, from the czar saying, like, nobody can touch you because you killed your dad. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Which is a very powerful thing for them. It is a way home again. All... And essentially, all three of our characters have now found a way, quote-unquote, home. But only two of them are really content with it anymore. Wanda's found a family. She's found a way to get back to her hometown. Irina is in the position of a czar and in, in some ways protected and sheltered in a kingdom that is now prospering, even if it's still tied to a demon. And Miriam's back with her family. But... Which is all that she thought she wanted. Yeah. But they've grown since. And... In the past all of them, chapter and a half... <laughs> they've realized in the last chapter and a half how far they've grown we um, are in the, the the last third of a harry potter book like let's go yes but exactly speaking and of I- guys should we stop here we are well over an hour and address the last bit of the plot in our next episode yeah i think that we should go back to the star kingdom in the next chapter um yep. which is probably a relatively short recap and maybe go into chapter or into characters from there I think characters yep. and rebuilding the book would be fascinating for the, for our next episode. Yeah, um, let's do the last bit of plot um, mm-hmm. and then get into the things that I really wanted to talk about this episode. Yes. And you all wouldn't let me. <laughs> all we appreciate your patience, Sarah. <laughs> I was going to say, and we might. I think we might end up needing two episodes for maybe the rest of the plot and the characters being yeah. one and then like the, the world uh, after I, that and all of the magic and other fun little sure. bits that you guys probably didn't pick up because... They're a little bit more specific to things that I'm familiar with. I, ha- I happily Perfect. had a resident. Jew- I happily had a resident Jew reading alongside me, and it was eminently helpful for aspects of this. I'm yes. I was anyway. very in the, in the Gentile world, so you all can tell me things. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think I think an episode of world building, religion, culture, magic would be great for a se- for a second additional episode from this. But Perfect. this has been a lot of fun. I, you know, it's going to be a blast to go through more material but if our listeners are desperate to find more things to listen to while they're stuck at home during the middle of an outbreak BJ, where can they go to get it? Um, so we are starting to, to come to the home stretch of our uh, second book in the Harry Potter uh, Septology is that? That's not a word anyway um, It's close and- enough <laughs> <laughs> in the uh, Chamber of Secrets. Um, and so that is Pottering Around, our Pottercast within a podcast. Um, and that is on MangumTalks.com, where you can find all of our uh, podcasting uh, prowess with uh, Whiskey on the Weekends, which we're doing a bunch of uh, special episodes for our basically drinking whiskey while locked in. Um, as well as Mangum Talks TV, which I believe recently finished up Succession, and I think is going to go on to The Mandalorian. First Baby episode Yoda! <laughs> we will get Baby Yoda in all of his incredible cuteness. Um, and all sorts of exciting things, as well as a couple of other podcasts which happen vaguely sometimes, like Mangum Laughs and Mangum Hoops. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on what to read or things that we didn't cover and you think that we should, um, you can click contact us in the upper right-hand corner of the web uh, site, mangumtalks.com. And we always look forward to hearing from our listeners. And with that, have a good yep. night, y'all. Until next time. Bye, guys.